The following is a sermon from the Edgington Evangelical Presbyterian Church in Taylor Ridge, Illinois. Well, friends, let me encourage you to open up your copy of God's Word. We're opening again to the book of Colossians. We're opening into Colossians in chapter 4. You can find that on page 985 of a Bible in the rack. If you need one, grab one or whatever Bible you have open with me. You'll, you'll note in the bulletin that this is our 27th in a series, Christ Preeminent. And I can tell you we're probably not going to make it to 29 uh, because I believe that this is the second to last. So uh, we'll do uh, 28 sermons. We'll finish, Lord willing, next week the book of Colossians. And we've been studying this book together throughout uh, the year 2022, actually going back to January. So uh, it's been wonderful to, to read this book together. Let's remind ourselves as you're turning to Colossians 4 that Paul writes to the church at Colossae, uh, a church gathered in Philemon's house, meeting for worship, uh, being led uh, by Epaphras, uh, who would have been their pastor most likely in Philemon's house. And they receive this letter, the letter of the Colossians, or to the church at Colossae, uh, in the hand of the letter carrier Tychicus, who would read the letter to the church gathered. And so one of the things that we actually struggle to understand, because doing sequential expositional preaching, uh, spreading the book of Colossians out over 28 sermons, when the church would have just heard the letter read in one sitting straight through. And they would have, of course, received copies of it to go back to it, but their initial impressions of the letter would have just been to sit and read the whole thing. So even though we've been moving slowly, section by section, verse by verse, uh, it might be a benefit for you to go back and read the whole thing once through. And if you were to do that, what you would see is the major divisions of the book of Colossians are is that in the first two chapters, Paul is exalting in the truth of who Jesus is and what he has done so that in chapters 3 and 4, he can then say, because that is true, here's how the preeminent Christ intends to transform your life. So Christ is preeminent in the first two chapters, and the application of Christ's preeminence to your life as you follow him with sincerity in chapters 3 and 4. And so it makes sense then that at the close, at the end of chapter 4, under that heading of further instructions, Paul is saying, okay, now that you know that all of that is true, and now that I have given you some instructions about what to do in your own life and in the context of this gathering of this particular church, now I want you to take that to the world. I want you to take the truth that you have heard and have been applying in your life and within this church, and I want you to move it outside the walls of your church. Take the word into the world is what Paul is saying. Last week we saw in chapter 4, verses 2 to 4, that we are to pray for an open door for the gospel because the word of God and the gospel of God goes out into the world on the wings of the prayers of the people of God. Paul says, pray for an open door so the gospel can go out, that the word might go out. And last week we were seeing how the word goes into the world by way of prayer. This week in verses uh, 5 and 6 of chapter 4, we see that the word goes out into the world and Paul is focusing on witness, witness, how the gospel goes out in the world by our opening our mouths to speak about Christ, opening our mouths to speak about Christ, the word going into the world by way of witness. So that's where we're headed this morning. Let's pray and ask God's blessing upon the scriptures as we hear it together in faith. Let's pray. Gracious God, we praise you for this time that we have together. We praise you for the Lord's Day. 
and we praise you for the beautiful thing it is that your people would gather and open the scriptures and together sit under their authority. Lord, collectively, we are doing that together. And so we pray that you would lead us by your Holy Spirit, that the words that are read and the words that are spoken and the words that are believed would be your living and true word to pierce our hearts and bring correction where it is needed and comfort where it is needed and most of all to lead us all together to Christ. So Lord, bless now your word to your people, we pray. In the name of the exalted Christ, we ask it. Amen. And so hear the word of God, Colossians 4, verse 5 and 6. This is God's word. Walk in wisdom toward outsiders, making the best use of the time. Let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. Amen. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the Word of God abides forever. Do keep your Bible open there. Colossians 4, verse 5 and 6. The Word of the world by way of witness. In the EPC, that's our denomination, the Evangelical Presbyterian Church, we have, in addition to our Confession of Faith, the Westminster Standards, we have a document that we call the Essentials. They are seven statements that provide the essential truth of what we believe is true of all Christian churches that we are putting forward as an Evangelical Presbyterian Church to say, we believe these things along with all of the church. Regardless of denomination, we believe these things. And of that list, the seventh essential goes like this. EPC essential number seven says, the Lord Jesus Christ commands all believers to proclaim the gospel throughout the world and to make disciples of all nations. Here at the end of Colossians, we're thinking about how the word goes into the world. And what we're talking about is evangelism because we are the evangelical Presbyterian church. The root word that we get evangelical from is euangelizo, and that word just means good news. The euangelion is the good news of the gospel. So when we say we are a evangelical church, that means we are a good news church. We are a gospel-believing, gospel-trusting, gospel-promoting, gospel-advancing church. That's what it means to be an evangelical church. And as an evangelical Presbyterian church, we want to extend the hope of the gospel into the world. And that's what Paul is encouraging this congregation at Colossae to do. Now, they met their particular challenges in the first century. Just like you and I meet our particular challenges in this century as well. You and I, in our time, meet a world of increasing social and digital connectivity that reveals an increasing thought diversity coming with an increasing temperature of social dialogue. All of these things are true. Increasing diversity, increasing temperature of social dialogue. There is also added to that an increasing diversity of opinion even within the church about what the church is supposed to be doing with the gospel. So to that, you might be interested to know that Barna, which is one of the preeminent Christian institutions for research and survey in the world, Barna recently did a study asking professing Christians their thoughts about this very topic. Their thoughts about being a witness for Christ, their thoughts about 
evangelism, etc., and they categorize their results by way of generational gaps, as we're often used to seeing millennials, Gen X, and boomers. And sorry if you're beyond a boomer, you're just categorized as an elder now. You're no longer uh, greatest generation and builder generation. You're just elder. God bless you, but according to Barna, you're just grouped together in there. Well, interestingly, they said this, that almost all practicing Christians believe that part of their faith involves being a witness for Christ. All generations, millennial through elder, believe at least 95 to 97% that they should be a witness for Jesus and also that one of the best things that could ever happen to somebody else is for them to believe in Jesus. Pretty much everybody agrees with that. What's interesting, though, is that there is a massive shift where people are actually unsure about the way that should go about happening. So they believe they should be a witness and they believe that other people should believe in Jesus, but almost half of my generation, millennials, almost half of millennials agree that it is wrong to share one's personal beliefs with somebody else in hope that they would one day share your faith. In other words, 47% of millennial Christians believe it's wrong to evangelize, and this is compared to almost a quarter, or a little over a quarter, 27% of Gen X agree with that statement, one in five boomers, 20% believe that statement, and 20% of the elder generation believe that it is wrong, wrong, to share your faith conviction with another person in the hopes that they would one day possess your same faith. In other words, that percentage thinks it's wrong to share your faith. Now that's interesting, it has many implications, but I think one of the things that we should say is that one of the primary reasons for this generational dissonance is this point of conviction, or rather a lack of conviction on this very point, that people who think that their faith is not worth sharing will certainly not believe that their faith is worth preserving in themselves. I'll say it again, that a faith that's not worth sharing with others is not a faith worthy of preserving. So what has happened or what is happening, we're confronting a reality where a lack of evangelical sincerity has produced fledging convictions that has produced vacated churches. If I don't think my faith is worth sharing with somebody else, it's probably not worth preserving in myself, so I'm probably not going to stay, says nearly half of my generation. A faith worth not sharing is a faith not worth preserving, and loved ones, we should care about that. We should be concerned about it. And in that context, we should hear Paul's words again. Look again, chapter 4, 5, and 6. It says, walk in wisdom towards outsiders, making the best use of your time. Let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. Paul says, the church that is not concerned with what's beyond the walls of the church is a church that's not probably going to last very long. So, he speaks of outsiders. Verse 5, walk in wisdom toward outsiders. Now Paul uses this term outsiders frequently in the New Testament to describe those who are not in the church. 
For example, in 1 Timothy 3.7, one of the qualifications for an elder is that they should be well thought of by outsiders. That is to say that people worthy of the office of elder shouldn't just have a good reputation within the church, but also of notable respectability outside the church as well. Outsiders. So this dynamic of insider-outsider is a way of speaking about those who are within the fellowship of the people of God and those who are outside of the fellowship of the people of God. Or, because believers are in Christ, we can speak of the unbeliever being outside of Christ. And this becomes a determinative division of how we are to see people, not by race or class or other social stratification, but whether they are in Christ or not. And this notion of within and without or insider-outsider is not intended to produce some kind of Christian monasticism or Christian ghetto where the purpose of the church is to turn inward and to separate ourselves from the outsiders, and unfortunately, that all too easily happens, where churches turn so inward and focus so much on their community life within the church that they forget about the world around them. They forget about the larger community around them. Churches focus less and less on their neighbors and more and more only on themselves, and they have less and less contact with those outside the church. I struggled with that when I was in seminary because I lived in a world of a Christian ghetto where everybody around me was not only a Christian, but in some sort of sincerity preparing for ministry or teaching about ministry. It kind of disturbed me a bit, so I got a job working at a grounds crew at a local retirement home just so I could hang out with people who didn't think just like me. And my boss didn't give a rip that I was in seminary. He would talk to me about whatever he wanted. It was actually refreshing. It was actually refreshing. The Christian church should not be only turned inward, not concerned with our neighbors. And Paul is speaking here, this concluding word to the church, meeting in Colossae, speaking about the importance of interactions with those who are not within the church. Neighbors, friends, non-Christians that we know. And to that, he addresses himself to two realities. First of all, the Christians walk. How they walk, or their manner of life as a Christian. And then secondly, their words. So Paul is writing to the church to speak about how the word goes out into the world by way of witness, and he's focusing on your walk and your words. So first of all, he speaks about our walk. Now notice there again in verse 5, uh, he speaks of walking in wisdom. And Paul loves to say walk in the book of Colossians. And that's the way he refers to the reality of your Christian life. Is your Christian walk. So back in chapter 1 verse 10, he speaks of walking in a manner worthy of Christ. Living your life worthy of Christ. And also in chapter 2 verse 6, he says walk in Christ. Walk in Him. To walk as a Christian is to live your life of Christian discipleship. And as he speaks of this reality, he says, what should be characteristic of your life as a Christian or your walk as a Christian disciple is you should be walking in wisdom. There, verse 5. Walking in wisdom. Now again, Colossians speaks often of wisdom. Wisdom comes from Christ, the source of all wisdom. Colossians 2, 3. It's given by the Spirit. Colossians 1, 9. It comes from apostolic teaching, Colossians 1.28, and wisdom is to be a characteristic description of the Christian believer. Wisdom is very clearly a biblical concept, but we oftentimes struggle to know exactly what wisdom is. And wisdom is simply applied knowledge. It's not just knowing stuff. It's doing something with the stuff that you know. So, wisdom is the person who doesn't just know things, but who knows what to do with what they know. 
Wisdom informs their living. In other words, Paul, when he says walk in wisdom, he is saying be a spiritually street smart Christian. Have some common sense about the way you live your life. Walk in wisdom as you make the best use of your time there in verse 5. Walk in wisdom toward outsiders, making the best use of your time. How should you relate to the world outside the church? How should you relate to unbelievers with wisdom and a certain economy? That language there, it takes a bit of the edge off the original wording, but this original language is Paul's description. It's kind of a commercial term. It's a shopping term. It's an exchange type of term. It's a compound word in Greek, and the word literally just means buy up, purchase, uh, assume to yourselves, but buy up, not in the sense of like casual browsing as you walk around the store and someone comes, can, you, can I help you? And you say, just looking, etc. type of thing. Uh, the language here is a picture of like you're waiting at the door that's locked for the owner to unlock the door so you can sprint to the closest display of the thing that you want and grab everything that's there and buy it up. That's the language. When he says, make the most use of your time, he says, buy up the time. Buy up the opportunity. Take advantage of it. And when Paul says, make the best use of your time, he says, that's what we need to be concerned about is time. Or we could also say opportunity. He gives this picture of you as a Christian are something of a spiritual bargain hunter and you are looking to buy up every opportunity you can to get your hands on the opportunity to speak about Jesus. And this needs to begin to shape a characteristic gospel opportunism. So here's what he's saying. Make the best use of your time because the time is short. Now you know that already, don't you? Time is an unbelievably precious commodity. Like, you ask anybody how they're doing anymore and they say, I'm busy, right? And they'll roll off to you all the stuff that they have going on. Everybody's busy. But what Paul is saying here is that for the church to be concerned about the world, for the church to be concerned about its unbelieving neighbors and friends, the church needs to realize that the, we need to make the best use of our time because time is a precious commodity. Don't you realize? Your unbelieving neighbor only has so much time, is what Paul is saying. Your unbelieving family member only has so much time to make up their mind about what? About Christ. That's what he's speaking about. He is calling Christians to take the opportunity to shine the light of Jesus Christ because you don't know. You don't know to the person with whom you might be speaking how much time that they have. Now listen, I would venture to guess that every single one of us who are, at least in some respects, attempting to sincerely be a follower of Jesus, you probably have somebody in your life to which you would say, you know what? I really want to talk to them about spiritual things. I really want to find the time or I wish the opportunity would present itself. I really need to do that. And every single one of us probably has that. But you know what else is also a reality? In the metaphorical stove of your life, the back burner is the biggest burner on the stove, isn't it? You say, I need to do that, but I'm going to do that some other time. I need to talk to this person about pressing spiritual concerns that they, I, they have and I know they have, but now's not the right time. 
right? Paul says, how do you know? Why are you so convinced that it's not the right time? You say, i got plenty of time. I'll get around to it. But Paul is saying, no, buy up the time. Make the best use of your time. It's precious. Don't waste it. A really important point of application from what Paul is saying here is that if you have somebody in your life that you are convinced does not know the hope of Jesus Christ and needs to, you should be encouraged to pray for the opportunity. And when the opportunity comes, have enough courage to take it. To take it. Speak about Jesus. Speak about His death for the forgiveness of our sins and His glorious resurrection and the hope that He brings to all who trust in Him. But you know why we don't? And we don't. Do you know why? Well, we have a lack of confidence of what we're going to say, don't we? We say things like, well, what if they have questions that I can't answer? And what if I don't say it right? Or what if I say the wrong thing? And what about like, if it makes sense in my mind, but every time I try to communicate it, it comes out and doesn't make any sense, even though it totally makes sense to me in my mind. Guess what? The Apostle Paul has great news for you because what he's going to go on to say now is not only how you walk out your life in terms of dispositional concern and urgency for the world around you, now he's going to talk about the words that you speak. So because the words that we speak are usually the primary obstacle to keep us from doing it, that's exactly what he's going to talk about here in verse 6. First, our walk and now our words. Look again at verse 6. He says, let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. How do we capitalize on opportunities to speak about Christ? Paul says, well, you have to speak. You have to open your mouth. Now listen, I don't, do, I don't often do this in my preaching because I don't want to be a critical preacher, but I'm going to take a detour here and be critical of a very popular sentiment that I imagine many of you have heard. You may even have it stitched on a pillow somewhere in your house. You may have heard it said to preach the gospel at all times and if necessary, use words. Preach the gospel at all times and if necessary, use words. Suggesting that our actions should be the loudest way that we proclaim the gospel. Now listen, as it's related to life application, it should be true that your life should be lived out in sincerity. But words are not an optional part of the gospel. It's not the fact that words may or may not be necessary. They are necessary because you cannot explain the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus just by observing somebody's life. You have to say Jesus died for sin and was buried and was raised. It takes words. Saying, preach the gospel at all times, if necessary, use words, is like saying, feed the hungry at all times, and if necessary, use food. That doesn't make any sense. The gospel is words. We do have to speak. Paul is saying... Much to the chagrin of the shy and introverted Christian, you have to open your mouth. But it puts us right back to that point where we say, well, what do I, what do I say and how do I say it and all the rest? But I want you to notice in verse 6 that Paul is teaching here that it's not so much what you say as it is how you say it. That's what I want us to see in verse 6. It's not so much what you say as it is how you say it. Notice that in verse 6. He says, let your speech always be what? Gracious. 
gracious. At the very least, that means kind, not harsh. It's likely a bit more than just a reference to tone of voice. He's saying, let your words be characteristic of the grace that you are speaking about. In other words, it doesn't make sense for you to speak about the wonderful grace of Jesus and be a jerk as you do it. If you're speaking about the wonderful grace of Jesus that transforms lives, the way you say it should be evident that that same grace has done a work on you. So if I'm going to put it in the most you know, crude Zach translation again, Paul is saying, look, Colossians, don't be a jerk. Don't be a jerk when you're talking about Jesus. Don't miss that word there also, he says, always, in verse 6. Let your speech always be gracious. It would be easier if he had said occasionally, right? Be gracious when you really need to be, when you want to really get sincere about having a conversation, but not just when you're speaking about Jesus, but when you think perhaps you're not going to be overheard or when you're concerned about not being on your best behavior. But always be gracious. Let your speech always be gracious, always full of grace. Now listen, this is a word of correction to me very much. It's a word of correction to all of us, I hope, but for me also... Because, this is something of a confession time for the pastor, like everybody knows that I'm a pastor. I don't, I don't have social interactions oftentimes with people who don't know that I'm a pastor. So, I, I am guilty sometimes, you know, with the, the unsuspecting customer service call center person who has no idea of who I am and for whom I have no social ramifications based off of this interaction to sometimes very much lose my patience and be very direct and speak harshly to them. I do that Unfortunately, I do it too much, and a couple months ago, my wife really corrected me on that. You do that. And I'm wrong. I'm wrong. Paul is saying, always to be gracious. Always to be gracious. Seasoned with salt, he says. There in verse 6. Now, normally when we, when we talk about somebody having salty language, we probably think something else, Right? Like a sailor with salty language is how we would think about it here. But that's not what Paul means. Paul is speaking about the application of wisdom that just as the, the well-trained chef knows how to properly and at the right time season a dish and how much to use to amplify the flavor, so too does the Christian growing in wisdom and maturity know how to use their speech carefully. Their speech is seasoned with salt. It's careful. They know when to speak. They grow in discernment, as Paul says, so you may know how you ought to answer each person. And again, when Paul talks about answering there, he's not talking about the sense of like answering their objections or answering their arguments or answering in terms of a debate. He is speaking there about how we are to respond and receive people dispositionally by the characteristic attitude of our words. Not what you say, but how you are speaking to them. In a sense, Paul is saying here that he would prefer less words more graciously than more words ungraciously. Because you have to be somewhat discretionary with your application of salt, lest the dish becomes too salty. A little bit goes a long way. And sometimes, in the sincerity of the way you speak about Jesus, a little bit goes a long way. Instead of overwhelming somebody with all of these words right away, it's better to have a relationship with them and 
Speak of a testimony and speak of the hope of Jesus as you take the word out into the world. So he is moving to the conclusion of this letter as he is calling the Colossian Christians to take the word out into the world by their faithful witnesses, by their walk and their words. So let me ask you a question. As you see Paul speaking about that, it is likely the case that the primary response that you have is a feeling of guilt. Do you feel guilty from what Paul is saying? When you say, oh, I don't, I don't do that, I don't do it the way I should, and I don't do these things, so I feel terrible about it. I want you to know that the primary purpose of Paul giving this exhortation at the conclusion of this letter is not to then leave you at a place of just wrecked guilt where you say, oh, I don't, and I'm such a terrible person, and what should I do? But rather, Paul is giving this exhortation at the conclusion of this letter to spur the church and individual Christian believers forward in their sanctification, in their spiritual growth, in their time of growth as a Christian believer. Sanctification is how you are advancing. So as you read these descriptions, Christian, what you shouldn't primarily conclude is all the ways in which you don't, but ask yourself the question, in what ways have I seen this advance in my life? How have I grown in this reality? How have I matured in this reality? Am I actually more patient and gentle than I used to be? If you're in Christ, you probably are. And you're also probably not as patient and gentle as you will be, but you're also not as harsh and impatient as you used to be. Because the purpose of God's commands are to provide the opportunity for grace to change you. When God commands, they are essentially His promises in reverse. He commands and grace provides. He says, do this and my grace will transform you in the process. His commands are given to encourage you towards greater growth as you make strides and advances in taking the word out into the world. So, as a word of conclusion, Paul is saying and asking these Christians, and we should think in the 21st century, do you believe what you believe to such a degree that it is important to you to share it. And if not, it might mean that you don't hold your faith in the sincerity that you presume. Because if you had the absolutely undisputed cure to cancer that would work every single time, and you didn't share it, what would that say? The gospel is more than that. It is the hope to the hopeless and forgiveness for the guilty and new life for the spiritually dead. And that's what we have. And Paul says that needs to not just stay here. It needs to go out into the world so that every generation, elder to Z, Gen Z, can come to know Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, which is exactly what we proclaim at this table that Christ is powerful to save and that saving grace transforms us in such a way that we want to speak about the goodness of our Savior to those who know not yet the Savior's love. Loved ones, Paul says, take the word into the world by your witness with wisdom, with sincerity, with compassion. Let us draw on the strength of the Spirit to do so 
for his sake. Let's pray. Gracious God, we praise you for the truth of your word. And we ask that in the ways in which we are challenged and corrected, that your spirit would supply to us the grace to receive that challenge and correction, that we might grow. Every command is an opportunity to make advancements in spiritual maturity. So, Lord, would you help us here in Edgington to be a church with sincerity to speak the hope of Jesus Christ to neighbors and friends and co-workers? It's not our intention that the people that are here would only ever be the people that are here, but rather that those who know not the Savior's love would come to know it through our sincere witness. So bless that, Lord, we pray. For your glory's sake, we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to today's sermon. If you would like more information about our church or its ministries, please visit edgingtonepc.org. May God bless and keep you.